The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. The decree of Rome. You've been keeping secrets from us. I'm as surprised as you. Really? And I thought you and Caesar were like brothers. Caesar's always kept his own counsel. That's news to no one. Now, what do you want? We wish to know your heart. For instance, if one day you should find yourself inheriting the mantle of Caesar, could the Senate depend upon your friendship? Caesar has said nothing of succession. You'd be blind not to see that Caesar's forcing a confrontation. Apparently, he's decided that the only way to maintain his grip on power is to rob us of ours, to destroy the Republic, and anoint himself king. He's refused the crown, and I take him at his word. Your tone suggests otherwise. I stand with Caesar. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, August 30th, 2012. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color. Color into black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright Welcome to the show today where, as always, 519-661-3600 is the number to call if you want to join in on our very varied conversation today, I think, because we'll be talking a lot about what our listeners have been talking about over what they've heard on the show. And bit of feedback. Follow, a little bit of feedback and follow-up on some of the things that we've done over the summer. Also, speaking of feedback, you can email us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, O-R-G, where that site is just becoming better each and every day, Robert. I'm tweaking Our, it here and there, yeah. Yeah, a lot of stuff coming up online and a lot of developments that we'll have to update people on a little later on. There's a lot of content on that site. Uh, strictly speaking, what, you got about three, four hundred hours of listening material on that just, site. Just, uh, just audio, I think. Just audio. And then there's video and other aspects coming into it as well. But today on the show, we're going to be talking about, well, I'll be talking at the near end of the show, if we can squeeze it in, um, bye-bye elections. <laughs> Speaking of bye-elections, do they really matter anymore? Where, how are voters voting? Are they always going to be supporting Caesar, no matter what? You know what I mean? Um, Last week we talked about G.J. Rancourt and the expected big rally at, at City Hall here. <laughs> and I think the, the flip-flop flap equaled a flag flap-flop. <laughs> I got it right. I can't believe it. Uh, after, of course, we aired our show last week, there was a change in the city's policy on it and turnaround and some interesting events happened on the weekend. And we will actually be hearing a little bit of that um, controversial quote that the Free Press put up for us actually last week, and uh, we've just taken an excerpt from that. As well, we'll be hearing feedback from our listeners on, what do we got here? So many subjects. Um, Theocracy versus democracy, Al-Quds, the purpose of knowledge, Nietzsche, (coughs) and uh, civil disobedience, and protest, and free speech, all of these issues. I almost think the biggest theme overriding everything might be protest, civil disobedience, and free speech issues. For, for the change. most part, yeah. yeah. Change is all, what it's all about. 
However, we did hear from our um, Euro correspondent, Paul Lambert, who mm-hmm. writes us quite a lot. I can't even get into everything he writes us, but he keeps us informed from his perspective on various issues, how he looks at um, uh, what he hears us discussing. And he, he thought it was interesting, our discussion last week about the raising of the Christian flag in London here at City Hall. And we described the flag you did on the air. I forget, blue with... Uh, 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 blue square in the yeah. upper left-hand corner of a white field with a red cross in the middle of the blue, yeah. Now, he writes and tells us that the flag we described is that of the Baptist Church, that he found it was particular to that denomination. I, did you not tell me earlier you found there was an earlier origin to it, though? It's over 100 years old. For, mm. I'm just going from Wikipedia yeah. on that. It's over 100 years old. They don't mention Baptists in this article, um, but they say it's a sort of a, a universal flag that a number of denominations mm. uh, have adopted. Now, he's also uh, talking about uh, the show that Paul McKeever was on a couple weeks ago, co-hosting, and he says, I won't make a long email of this, but I must say that I differ somewhat in Paul McKeever's evaluation of the issue of being um, that the issue not being Jew hatred per se when he's talking about the uh, the Al Quds situation in Toronto, but in theocracy versus democracy, his observation is correct, but not the evaluation. There is no split between the two issues. This is what I mean. It is telling that in Islamic states, particularly Saudi Arabia and Iran, and soon Egypt that they declared that there be no split between their religious laws and the secular law, i.e. the rules that govern worldly society, and the religious doctrines are one and the same. This has been the total opposite in Judaism. The split between the religious and the secular goes all the way back to Moses. It is significant that Moses did not appoint Aaron, the high priest, as a political leader, but rather Joshua, who, while presumably a believer, was, according to one particular midrah, selected exactly because he had been in a field, yeah, he had been a field slave and used to living in survival mode. He was clearly showed greater concern with the earthly life than with philosophical and religious meditation. Furthermore, it is significant that it even took an outsider, a non-Jew, namely Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, to teach Moses how to organize such a large mass of people into a functional society. Now, I understand that none of you are religious, so you might not accept that as the actual history. However, it is still significant in this context simply as an illustration of theocracy versus democracy as being very much part and parcel of the anti-Jew sentiment among Muslims. Don't forget that Islam is not merely an anti-Semitic religion. It is a religion of anti-Semitism. There is no Islam without Jew hate. Now, that was an interesting statement and quite a bold statement to make. And... um, you know, I, I don't think that I agree entirely. I think uh, the whole issue on this point is, for me, it seems to be, it's like, which came first, the chicken or the egg, right? Uh, it's that kind of proposition. You could see, easily say, that taking the same quote Paul just did there and replace it with the words, Islam is not merely an anti-democratic religion, it is the religion of anti-democracy, theocracy, right? And it still reads proper and accurate, I think. There is no Islam without democracy hate, if you want to put it that way, or the love of theocracy, if you want to put it on the other side of the coin. Uh, Which I think explains why, even in the absence of a Jewish state, or even of the Jews themselves, this kind of thinking would merely switch its target from one to another. And I think if it weren't Israel, it would be the United States and Canada next, don't you? 
I don't know that I would agree with Paul's assessment of Islam like that. I know we know Muslims ourselves who uh, are democratic and can fully function in their religion in a democratic society. I think well, he's not saying Muslims; he's saying Islam again. See, there's that <laughs> distinction, and I that's the that, issue that I comes think up that We know Muslims who can practice Islam mm-hmm. in a democracy. Yes, we do. So. I don't know that I agree with him there. I think it, it, it boils down to what we've talked about on this show before, um, Islamification or Islamism, you know, a political concept of Islam versus the religion of Islam. It's interesting. Um, Paul offered a little more history on this again, too. He says, uh, for your information, Al-Quds has come to mean, quote, the holy. But it is significant in the context of the protest in that it is... Oh, it is a name that the Arabs currently give to Jerusalem. It is a corruption of the Hebrew Kodesh, K-O-D-E-S-H, which means holy, of Eretz HaKodesh, or the Holy Land. Why this is interesting is that for centuries after the final expulsions of the Jews from Judea by the Emperor Hadrian, the city was renamed Aelia Capitolina, and the Arabs in turn called it Elia. They only took on the name Al-Quds after it was clear that the city remained holy to the Jews. It never meant anything to the Muslims. So, interesting piece of history. Not sure if I <laughs> see the significance of it, though. Um, however, Paul replies, he also No, had, actually, I find uh, that very significant, yeah? as a matter of fact, yeah. Um, from my understanding of uh, Islam, I don't even think Muhammad visited there except in a dream. And uh, it's not the holiest place in Islam. Mm-hmm. Um, and they find it uh, because it upsets the Jews that um, they do push that particular place of uh, uh, worship, though. Because because I agree with Paul on this one, because it upsets the Jews. Uh, their mortal enemy, at least some Muslims' mortal enemy. Interesting. Now, another thing he wrote about, too, is uh, the other issue we were talking about. We were talking about Nietzsche on a show a couple of weeks ago. And um, Nietzsche had some comments on... You know, just have knowledge for the purpose of knowledge, for the sake of knowledge, is not necessarily being a good thing, right? And Paul writes, he says, One thing I struggled with <clears throat> was the idea of having a purpose behind knowledge. I followed much of what you guys said, but I'm not quite sure that I accept the idea of knowledge without a specific purpose as useless. A purpose may arise later, and it may complement other knowledge, which together gives one a more complete view of the world. I am often asked why I bother to study Latin or classical studies generally, and many dismiss all that as trivia. However, as I explain in his own show, he says, VSI, which we've mentioned on the show here, which otherwise largely discuss the aesthetic philosophy of popular music, the collection of such knowledge remains in the subconscious, and anyone with any power of lateral thought can apply it to understanding many phenomena relevant in the world today. I dare say that while Ayn Rand was probably the single greatest philosophic influence in my life, my studies of ancient history and even of the structural systems of languages like Latin and Hebrew provided the juicy bits that put everything into context. Thanks for a great show, etc. I've got something to say about that. Yeah. Interesting. uh, When you brought up Ayn Rand, it just reminded me, I'm reading her uh, Q&A book, uh, Questions and Answers from Ayn Rand. Mm And somebody asked her, um, is all knowledge worth studying? For example, uh, and, and she said, basically, yes. She said, if we find that there is a plant living on the dark side of the moon, now we leave that dark side of the moon thing alone for a minute, but a plant living on the dark side of the moon, is it worth studying? She goes, because we are all interrelated, the universe is all interrelated, 
Hmm. I mean, we're part of the universe. There's nothing really that is not worthy of study because we're studying, when we study that plant, we're studying ourselves in some respect. So, yeah, all knowledge, for the sake of knowledge, I think is uh, important, personally. Um, it can have a value, but at what point does it has, have that value? I think what you just said defies the whole purpose, that whole phrase. You just talked about knowledge not being just for the purpose of knowledge. You just put knowledge in the framework of, yeah, we can we put a purpose to it maybe later. Maybe later, and okay. I think that's the idea. Well, yeah. then is it knowledge or is it just a fact or a statistic up till then? You know, John McMurray brought up the same issue, and he's the St Scottish philosopher about... Um, not only that, knowledge is enjoyment. Oh, not, then, then it has a purpose, doesn't it? Yeah, right. right. Now, yeah, so I almost wonder what can knowledge for knowledge's sake be? It, it almost is like, 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 like the word altruism to me that that inverts on itself, right? That it's always selfishly driven somewhere. Mm -hmm. Whereas knowledge for knowledge's sake, well, uh, okay, trivia maybe. People, somebody wants to be on a game show or something. <laughs> I don't know, right? And even that would have a value, wouldn't it? With, yeah, I, mean, I suppose if you filled your head up with all kinds of facts, statistics, and issues that you could never apply in your own life to your own detriment. Now that, yeah. That I'm wondering if that is what John McMurray and Nietzsche were talking about. No, that could be. You know, Paul, Paul McKeever actually replied to um, Paul Lambert on this and thanked them for the useful history, etc. And he says, uh, he talked about Rand asking in which character in Atlas Shrug Shrugged was the most depraved. Her answer was Dr. Robert Stadler, owing, if he says, if he recalls correctly, to his lack of purpose in studying physics. I think with Nietzsche simply saying that there is so much to know that given the limited duration of a life, it is best to choose wisely what to learn and discover. Now, I don't know if that's exactly what Nietzsche meant, but that's an interesting interpretation, and it certainly applies to all things we do, right? I think so. I mean, I'm not going to spend my lifetime studying something if there was not an intrinsic value to it to me personally, and I don't think anybody else would. Yeah, you Knowledge know, becomes <clears throat> a hobby. Understanding things becomes a hobby of trying to figure things out. And, and then what would you, how would you classify knowledge, say, people who spend, just fill their brains with rules of, say, some kind of a, of a game? that they just play for pleasure or, uh, you know, a role-playing game or things like that that people can spend hours and hours on. It's personal enjoyment. See, even there, you, yeah. get, you get some value there's, out of it. There's a value, you? there's a purpose to it. We also had a comment from listener Yitzi who wrote and said, Nice show about Nietzsche. It reminded me of a philosopher I discovered during a wiki walk a while back. I like that term, <laughs> yes, wiki walk. Yes, that's nice. And he says, It's a Chinese philosopher who advocated ethical egoism. I can't think of any other Eastern philosopher who would be accused of this, he writes. And he gives us a quote, quote, What Yang Chu was for the self. If by plucking one hair he might benefit the whole world, he would not do it. <laughs> End quote, right? And uh, apparently it may have even com competed with Confucius's stuff at one point, he notes, though it soon sadly faded away. And he gave us a few uh, links, and you can easily find it, Yang... Y-A-N-G-Z-H-U. You'll find it on Wikipedia. It's also, also uh, C-H-U or yeah. T-S. Yes, uh, that's here T -S -E too. or T-S-U, I forget now. Yeah. Sue or Chu. Uh, he says, I may be looking at it with somewhat rose-tinted glasses, but considering he lived outside of Greece during Aristotle's time, I think he deserves some slack. <laughs> <laughs> I found well, a that was a fascinating yeah. find, Yang Chu, because uh, I've been looking at him. And I, 300 BC is when he lived. You know, I told I, I told this to Yitzi. I said thanks uh, for for the links and the show. I, uh, you know, I've long lamented 
this individualist philosophic vacuum that you see in Asian history, in, in Chinese culture, and in, in, in that part of the world. And I can certainly see why he would see similarities between Yang Shu and Nietzsche. I, I yes. really could when I, when I read him, but there was some awesome stuff there. And I saw some stuff there, and I'm going, wow, that's my personal life philosophy in some, some extent. So I want to do a show on him sometime in the future. Not today, but we'll have I to do I was reading a bit of him last night. Very fatalistic, uh, an yeah. egoist. But I think that the egoism of Yang Chu was still born in the Asian uh, world because they quickly went on to uh, other philosophies and left him behind. It's, which is a shame. It would be very interesting to speculate how uh, China would have evolved if they had adopted an egoistic philosophy 2,300 years ago. It also would be interesting to see how that history changed. Because I think the same thing's happening here, always on a different way. You know how we always say history rhymes. It doesn't necessarily repeat. Mm -hmm. Well, before we continue our rhyme, we have to take a quick break, and we'll continue with some feedback and debate generated by the show after this. You really like animals, don't you, Ken? What's the attraction? Because you can trust them, and they don't show off all the time. You know what Nietzsche said about them? He said they were God's second blunder. Bye, sis. Well, you tell him from me that I can, I, I can show him... Bye, George. I'm sorry about my brother, Ken. I know he's insensitive. He's had a hard life. Dad used to beat him up. Continuing our feedback from past shows, I have one here from a Mr. Blaze One Boy, and that's his <laughs> pseudonym that he used on uh, YouTube, uh, of our show from June 21st, where we interviewed lawyer Kevin Egan and former detainees of the Elgin Middlesex Detention Center, Robert Broly and mm -hmm. Jesse Hennebry. Now, Mr. Blaze Boy uh, was commenting on the video, and he apparently was also a former oh. detainee. Of the have we even mentioned the videos? EMDC. Have we even mentioned the videos available yet, or have we? Uh, yes, I think we okay. have. Haven't we? Or if not, then let's do it it's again there. today. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you can go to our YouTube channel. Uh, you can get there either via YouTube, uh, YouTube.com/slash/justrightmedia, one word, or go to our website at justrightmedia.org, and you'll see in the upper left-hand corner somewhere up there a uh, visit us on YouTube button, and then you can go right to our YouTube channel there and see. I think we've got about 27 videos up there at the moment. <clears throat> and this is what uh, this former detainee says. Quote, I've been there and have a hell of a story to tell. The inmates run the jail. The guards let the fights go on. I've seen a lot and I've been through a lot. There are good guards, but they uh, fall behind the other guards. I've been beaten there and I've been refused food by uh, the lieutenant there. 
The guards place um, popular inmates uh, who go uh, PC on half-day lockdowns, and they place inmates into ranges where their enemies are. Oh, how nice. Yeah. They also forced me to eat, either eat my fish dinner one night or starve. He's allergic to fish. Every week, fish was served. My diet never came. So they knew about his diet, but they served him stuff that he was allergic to. Sounds deliberate. Mm-hmm. So yeah, this out of all the jails in Ontario is the worst I've ever seen. I don't know how many jails he's seen, but uh, this is apparently the worst. The whole weekend thing where the guys are locked up for 60 hours has been ongoing since I can remember. And I just finished weekends recently there and live and... Um, Live witnessed weekenders get beat on the way out as well. It's just a horrible, dirty place. You know, that's just stunning because I just this morning read an, uh, an essay by uh, Conrad Black, who's spent some time in prison. Mm-hmm. And we just heard back from Mark Emery through the National Post as well. And they've both been in prisons and their stories are so different. Yep. They both say, I've never heard a bad word from anyone, never had any conflicts, the, the whole deal. And you'd think that they they would be living in some kind of a hellhole. Meanwhile, the hellhole is just a couple blocks down the street here. Yes. That any one of us could find ourselves in for almost next to no reason. We're going to continue following the uh, Elgin Middlesex Detention Center story mm-hmm. because it's not going away. It's just going to get worse and worse until the government does something about that place. Watch for more on that one, that's for sure. Yeah. Now, this is from Christopher on our show from last week on freedom of speech. Mm-hmm. Back to that issue. (laughs) Uh, An important issue. Um, I think it's going to be a recurring theme as well. Uh, Christopher writes uh, via Facebook, uh, If I can speak in public agreement, why is it criminal trespass when I say something in a public space others disagree with? If I can stand in public, why is it criminal trespass when 10 or 10,000 stand with me? If it's right for one individual to do it, how does it become criminal when more individuals do it? Uh, Very interesting. Uh, I think that... uh, The concern, if I'm reading it right, is the government playing favorites with issues, and we've seen that in the past as well. The distinction is what the property is designated for, in my my, uh, estimation. To reiterate what I said last week, the government has the right to designate its property for specific purposes. There are properties which the government has designated for peaceful assembly, and that would be the appropriate place to hold a rally. Usually these places are in parks or in front of City Hall and front of Queen's Park. And sometimes the government requires you to ask permission to set up, for example, a stage or sound equipment and the like for your rally. And I don't think those requirements are unreasonable. Um, I don't know if I agree with you, Robert. I think you can say that they can be there by convention. I think a lot of things happen in, in our society by convention. There are no rules and laws that put them into place. Political parties being one. Most people think political parties are an official part of our electoral system. They are not. There's nothing in the law that says anything X about political parties existing. It's just that that's the convention by which they operate. And so we manage to do that. And political parties are one way of doing protests. But to me, the whole idea of a protest having to be pre, uh, pre-approved, so to speak, in a certain way, uh, by the agency that's being protested against. No, actually, you're getting ahead of me, because I'm going to be I? talking about that. Yeah, that's not well, exactly what he's talking about. I think he's talking about the fact that if he can go on the sidewalk and, and say something, what happens if 50 people there um, say something, the police move in and stop them, right? Well, 
as regards to this number thing, again, it's reasonable, I think, to put limits on assemblies in certain areas, in certain areas, if such a gathering might infringe on the rights of others. For example, we've several events in public parks here in London, but there are reasonable limits on noise and attendance numbers given consideration for the enjoyment of the homeowners adjacent to the parks for the enjoyment of their property. And I think that's what Christopher's getting at there with that particular point. Now, he goes on. I, I have quite a few points from Christopher, and I'm going to take them one mm. at a time. Uh, again, this is from Christopher. He says, Now, there's nothing wrong in having a law which requires a permit for a protest or parade. So I think he would disagree with you there. No, nothing that's wrong. perfectly... Uh, there again, that would be a convention. A, r- nothing wrong uh, with requiring a permit for a protest, right? Right. Or a parade. But such an ordinance becomes unjust when it's used to maintain injustice and to deny citizens the right to peaceably assemble and protest. And again, I'd agree, but I think it's the government can't be seen to play favorites, and that's what we're seeing out there, the government playing favorites and giving permission to some groups and not to others as long as there's no indication that the assemblies remain peaceful. There should be no hard... And, I, I agree with you on this, Bob. There should be no hard and fast rule as to what groups should be granted a permit and what groups should be denied one, but the government should be able to justify their reasons, and they should be good reasons. Why are you not giving this person a permit to protest when you gave that person a permit to protest? And that's what we're seeing out there. Government favoritism. Which is a separate issue entirely. That's a separate from, issue entirely, yes. But, but not in the sense of who they say can use a property at a given time. You don't want two groups using the same piece of land at the same time. No, it's conflict. You know, so yeah. to me, that's just, again, a convention. Mm-hmm. But if... A larger protest group should come and show up in the park after you've already licensed a smaller protest group. Um, what do you think the police would do? Which one would they, or what would they, you know, assuming there was violence? Oh, first come, first serve. <laughs> well, that would be the proper thing in that sense. Yeah. But uh, what, what happens in reality? What happens in, rea- in reality? <laughs> what happens in reality is the real crux of this issue, and I think that it's the police um, taking the easy way out. Uh, arresting the peaceful people, uh, arresting victims, uh, letting the violent people uh, blow off their steam, so to speak, so in, the, in the greater good, rather than have a, a violent clash. Uh, you witnessed it in uh, G20, you witnessed it in Occupy, and you witnessed it um, with the Quebec strikes, the student strike in Quebec. They let them blow off steam, right? To, and, to and, they'll, 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 and they'll arrest anybody who <clears throat> seems to counter-protest or get in the way. You saw it in Caledonia, right? When um, well, sure, and and come to our understanding that that's almost a police um, policy, mindset, and policy. Yeah. Yes, arrest the, uh, the 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 peaceful ones. Yes, yeah, temporarily put them away. It's happened again just recently in Caledonia again. That's right. Yes, a friend of ours was yeah. arrested on Monday for uh, peacefully protesting. And, and I again, think we're going to be take doing them to a show jail. On this. They take them there. They let them out again. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's an arrest, but there's never any charges. Never any charges. So yeah, it's just, it's a it's a method of removing the, the quote offensive um, to the people protesting person right. from from that. We'll talk a mo- little more about that later too. Uh, Chris continues, or Christopher continues. Robert, it seems obvious to me that whenever someone applies for a permit for ten or ten thousand people, it's always denied by the state if they disagree with the content. It always seems strange to me to ask permission to protest. From the people you're protesting. Yeah, my point exactly. Right they there. will always say no. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say that permits are always denied for groups they disagree with, but I can certainly agree with the observation that it is strange to ask permission to protest from the people you are protesting. Sometimes you just have to do what you have to do and be prepared for the consequences and take the risks. 
Civil disobedience is not always wrong. In fact, it's often quite justifiable and sometimes the only avenue available to right an injustice. Totally agreed. And civil disobedience, again, is a separate subject from protest, even though they go together sometimes, right? Mm. Civil disobedience, yes. You start taking your own risks in your hand, like Mark Emery did. Exactly. He's a good, he's a good example of yes. civil disobedience. And he understood the risk. He stated it up front. And he's paying that price. And he, and and he knew, well, actually, I think this was a bit of a left, uh, uh, came out of left field, being uh, extradited to a foreign well, the, country. Yeah, the foreign country <laughs> thing was not exactly in He the did plan. not expect it, and he mentioned that on our show, that he did not expect to be mm -hmm. uh, kicked out of his own country by his own government to spend jail in a foreign country for, for something that he did in this country. Maybe he's better off there than being an EMDC. I think so, yeah. <laughs> and finally from Chris, he says, five to 10,000 people show up for 420 every year, and that's the uh, marijuana merch. Mm. And they always threaten us with criminal trespass. Again, the cannabis marches he's talking about um, are always peaceful, from what I hear, and, and well attended. And the harassment the participants have to go through from the police is unjustified and simply wrong. But that's that issue, the issue of the police and their policy of arresting peaceful protesters. It's a broader topic on the tactics of the police, especially the OPP, but also local law enforcement in Toronto, for example, or in London, London's bad here, to harass the peaceful protester and turn a blind eye to the violent ones, as with G20, for example. Oh, there's one other uh, thing here from Chris. He's saying about uh, the comments about Gary McHale that I mentioned on the show. He says, you seem to suggest Gary carrying a Canadian flag is illegal. Um, which I didn't. Um, well, maybe it seemed that way, but that's not what I was trying to get well, across. Well, it, it would sound like that to someone who heard that he got arrested yeah. for doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Again, arrest does not mean charged. And he's not guilty and of even, anything. And even, I mean, it's illegal. Yeah. So, no, he was, he was arrested, but only as a peaceful protester to um, not cause a confrontation, because actually, uh, in this one case, uh, Gary, uh, Mark Vandermoss was arrested once. Um carrying a flag down the sidewalk and up comes a native protester and chest butts him right and mark shouts out to the police hey he just assaulted me right they came and arrested mark mm -hmm. <laughs> simply because the other guy was native right um i think it's a misunderstanding uh, that gary was arrested uh, but performed no illegal actions and has not been convicted of anything in fact uh, you know we're talking about uh, the other friend that was arrested on monday same sort of thing uh, we're going to take a break at the bottom of the hour. When I come back, we're going to be talking, we're going to give the last word to Ayn Rand on civil disobedience. And before uh, we leave, just want to let everyone know what they're going to be hearing now. We're going to be hearing two minutes of Ezra Levant speaking on the Michael Corrin show. You won't hear Michael Corrin's voice. This is just Ezra talking. Oh, this is a powerful clip. Uh, speaking uh, about the nature of free speech, touching on a lot of the things we just talked about. And on the other side, when we come back, we'll be hearing G.J. Rancourt in a raw video that was so you hear a lot of talking in the background so that but you can hear his voice clearly in terms of what he actually said what caused all of the whole issue and uh, boy look at all this just a bit of the the reaction to this issue from Londoners in the London Free Press want to look at some of that too we'll be back after this it's it's ironic that Canada which when we compare Canadian TV to American TV we say oh we're so liberal we allow sex on TV and swearing on TV you don't get that in the states we're much more progressive huh. yeah so we've got the we've got the porn yeah, we got those bases covered. But how about political speech? I, I'm not I'm not saying ban the porn. I you know I really don't care. But 
But why, why are we so proud of that freedom, but we don't go for the more strategic and important and fundamental freedom of freedom of speech on political or religious matters? I'm not sure who it was who said, that one, I'll win the rest back. Mm. And if you look historically, you, you've been joking around about the fact that we're conservatives, but I put it to you that conservatives actually need free speech less than marginalized groups, liberals. Because when women didn't have the vote uh, 80, 90 years ago, they had nothing but their free speech to make the arguments. They couldn't vote on it. Suffragettes only got the right to vote through free speech. Black equality, the civil rights movement in the 60s, only happened because of freedom of speech. Gay rights, gay equality before the law, the decriminalization of homosexuality only happened because of free speech. When you are poor and have nothing, no power, no money, no friends, you only have free speech. Gandhi only had free speech. The great changes, the great progress that the left celebrates came about because of unbridled free speech. No, offensive free speech because it naturally had to offend the existing order to get a change. We should love offensive free speech because it's the only thing that causes things to move. Now, not all offensive free speech is of equal value. We don't agree with it all, but we should always test our assumptions. We should always subject our, our, our society to the acid test of, is this the best way of doing things? And the guy who wants to make a change is always going to offend someone, but we should listen to him at least before we dismiss him. And that's what bothers me about these human rights commissions. They are illiberal. They are illiberal. They squelch ideas. They try and change a man's mind instead of through, uh, through argument, just through duct tape. That's wrong. Canada was founded upon the principles of God being the supreme ruler of Canada and the rule of law. The rule of law is very important as well. We can't forget that. And so the rule of law exists in Canada. That means that if if you're a new Canadian, you just came here yesterday, and you want to vote, and I, my family's been here 350 years, we have the same vote. If you, if you break a window and I break a window, we get the same punishment. That's the rule of law. That's why so many people want to come to our country, Canada. We respect liberty and democracy for all, rule of law for all. But if you try to impose your values on the rest of us, I got news for you, it ain't going to happen. It isn't going to happen. So get it out of your mind right now because that's not happening. And so we, we, our Judeo-Christian heritage allows for separation of state and religion, of freedom of the press, freedom of expression, freedom of speech, and freedom of religion. We respect all cultures because we are who we are. But we will not have a culture impose its values on anybody else. And gender apartheid, really, that's not part of our heritage. And really, we want, we want Muslims and Islamic people feeling comfortable. We really do. I respect that they're strong, fervent in their faith. I respect that. I don't agree with it, but I respect it. And I think that they should be allowed the freedom to practice it fully, but not in Canada. Somewhere so maybe what we should do is say, hey, I want you comfortable. I don't want any harm to come to you. I respect what you're doing for the most part. I don't agree with it, but I respect it because I'm a Canadian. Now, perhaps a one-way ticket home would be a good idea, too, wherever home may be, where you can practice it in freedom and comfort because we want you comfortable. We don't want you uncomfortable.
<laughs> we don't want you uncomfortable. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. That was uh, G.J. Rancourt speaking apparently in um, July of 2011, and that was posted by the London Free Press on their site. On I got it on August 23rd. And um, he was actually speaking to a reporter from, I think it was Omni or some station, and that was taken by a camera on the side there. So there you hear the, the original offending comments, which we'll get back to in a moment. But Robert, you still had a couple of comments you wanted to follow up with. You had a really challenging point that Chris brought up there. Yeah, I, I did neglect to mention one uh, point that Chris brought mm-hmm. up, and that was um, a pr- very provocative statement. Uh, and I'll just read it out to you. It says, quote, I've tried to make it clear that it's wrong to use immoral means to attain moral ends. But now I must affirm that it's just as wrong, or perhaps even more so, to use moral means to preserve immoral ends. Now, I'd agree with the first statement on that, that it's uh, wrong to use immoral means to attain moral ends, obviously. But to use, it's wrong to use moral means to preserve immoral ends? I don't know about that one. You could, you could almost, again, that could be a contradiction in terms, if you look at it that way, but I think what he's saying is, what if you're using moral means, a democratic system, all that stuff, to preserve something that is ultimately immoral? But, but by implication, now, he's saying that if you're not using moral means to get rid of immoral ends, then you're using immoral means, and that's... <laughs> That's well, sort of oxymoronic, yeah, isn't and, it? And the one thing, of course, that, that we learn in politics after a while is that means and ends are one and the same. They are never different. The system that promises them to be different mm-hmm. is the left-wing socialist system. It always promises an end that is never reached by an immoral means. Yeah theft and confiscation, whereas capitalism means and ends are one and the same. Capitalism doesn't promise you anything. That's right. Except that you'll be free, you'll be, nobody else will be telling you what to do. So the, the ends and the means are the same. And in that sense, this problem only comes up, I guess, in a collectivist system. Hmm. I wanted to give the last word to uh, Ayn Rand on this particular okay. issue of civil disobedience and protests. And she blurs the line a little bit between what we would call civil disobedience and uh, the simple outright protest. But this is what she had to say on the issue. Civil disobedience may be justifiable in some cases when and if an individual disobeys a law in order to bring an issue to court as a test case. For example, Mark Emery, I guess, Bob. Mm. Such an action involves respect for legality and a protest directed only at a particular law which the individual seeks an opportunity to prove to be unjust. The same is true of a group of individuals when and if the risks involved are their own. But there is no justification in a civilized society for the kind of mass civil disobedience that involves the violation of the rights of others. Regardless of whether the demonstrator's goal is good or evil, The end does not justify the means. No one's rights can be secured by a violation of the rights of others. Mass disobedience is an assault on the concept of rights. It is a mob's defiance of legality as such. The forcible occupation of another man's property or the obstruction of a public thoroughfare is so blatant a violation of rights that an attempt to justify it becomes an aberration, or sorry, an abrogation Mm. of morality. An individual has no right to do a sit-in in the home or office of a person he disagrees with, and he does not acquire such a right by joining a gang. Rights are not a matter of numbers. 
and there can be no such thing in law or in morality as actions forbidden to an individual but permitted to a mob. I think this goes back to Christopher's first uh, comment. The only power of a mob, Rand continues, as against an individual is greater muscular strength, i.e. plain brute physical force. The attempt to solve social problems by means of physical force is what a civilized society is established to prevent. The advocates of mass civil disobedience admit that their purpose is intimidation. A society that tolerates intimidation as a means of setting disputes, settling disputes, the physical uh, intimidation of some men or groups by others, loses its moral right to exist as a social system, and its collapse does not take long to follow. She concludes... Politically, mass civil disobedience is appropriate only as a prelude to civil war, as a declaration of the total break with a country's political institutions. I'd agree with her there. And that, I think, Again, that's something you can't know in advance. You can't know. It's going like, to lead up to that situation. Christopher talked about yeah, that, how right. a future event, how can you right. tell a future event uh, makes your actions justifiable or not? Mm-hmm. Well, I think well, that we're talking about civil war is, means putting your life on the line for what you're doing every day, taking up arms. And we're nowhere near that stage. <clears throat> in this country, hopefully. Well, speaking of protests, this was what By was the way, going I on. want to thank Christopher yeah. for his remarks. They were very yeah, thought-provoking. They were. And uh, we want to c- carry on this theme with what was happening in, the, in London on the weekend. London Free Press reports on the 25th, as promised, flag flies. True to his word, G.J. Rancourt raised the Christian flag using his own mini-pole outside London City Hall Friday night. But despite a controversial lead-up to the flag-raising, the event attracted little attention, with only about two dozen people showing up for the ceremony. Hmm, far from the thousands that he, <laughs> he was talking about. Yeah. The flag was originally okayed to fly from a pole outside City Hall, but on closer review, the city clerk decided it didn't meet the city flag-flying policy and reversed her conditional approval. It's the first time I saw that word conditional tossed in there. That reversal came after Rancourt came into public spotlight for comments he'd made last year suggesting Muslims who practice Sharia law should be given a one-way ticket out of Canada. The controversy that dogged Rancourt this week prompted London Christian and Muslim community leaders to write a joint statement affirming their commitment to celebrating religious diversity. And sure enough, in the same day's paper, that Vox Pop um, editorial appeared with the heading, Christian Muslim Communities Come Together to Promote Tolerance and Acceptance, signed by no fewer than eight people, including Robert Bennett, Anglican Bishop of Huron, William Danaher, Canon Ethicist, Anglican Diocese of Huron, Reverend Barry Moore, United Church of Canada, and um, Sheikh Jamal uh, Talablaman, if I'm getting that right, London Muslim Mosque, Dr. Munir El-Kassim, Imam, Islamic Centre of Southwestern Ontario, Rob Osman, Chair of the London Mosque, Mohammed Os- Osman Yassin, President of the Islamic Centre of Southwestern Ontario, and Nabil Sultan, Muslim Association of Canada. He's a chapter head there, which I thought was an interesting mix because most notably missing from the list was a representative of the Roman Catholic Diocese since it was the original proponent of the March for Jesus, whereas uh, Rancourt was organizing the Prayer Fest part, if you recall. And uh, so I, either, I, I was thinking either the Catholic Diocese is trying to distance itself from both sides in the debate, or the signatories to the joint statement maybe were thinking of the Catholic Diocese as being in that. I don't know. I think the former is more likely. 
But uh, they write, in response to the recent media coverage of an individual's politics of division parading under the banner of religion, we the undersigned want to affirm our support of people of all religious backgrounds and our commitment to celebrating our religious diversity as a source of peace rather than a cause of division. Then after they mention some charity work that each done, they write, We believe that it's the responsibility of of us all to oppose fear-mongering, racism, discrimination, and the propagation of a politics of exclusion under the banner of religion wherever it may exist in whichever form it may take. It strikes me that that's what religion's about, is exclusion. You're a member of one religion or another. You can't be a member of both. We fully support the right of every faith group to practice their faith in peace and without discrimination. Notice, but non-faith groups aren't included, right? Let us move beyond the politics of exclusion and fear we've recently witnessed. Let's come together as a community of believers who place their trust in God. I and guess you and I aren't welcome we're there. We're not welcome there, and neither is, apparently, Mr. Rancourt, another believer, hmm. because of their tolerance, you see. <laughs> it's so funny. The, the list of writers to this piece is almost as long as the piece itself, and the message conveys speaks to the commonality of this group of religious people with, you know, the religious individual they're actually ostracizing and condemning. A person whose only objection to anything I really heard religious was Sharia law. That's what he was saying. So by implication, what this group is saying is that we should all tolerate Sharia law. And that we shouldn't just... What else are they saying? They didn't say anything specific that Mr. Rancourt said with purpose. You can bet on that. You know, this nonsense about let's feel good and let's not mention one explicit concrete idea or anything that was said You're absolutely is the right. essence of evil, as far as I'm concerned. They didn't mention anything specific. All fuzzy feel-good stuff. Nothing. I'd love to hear them come out and say, Do you, are you in favor of Sharia, Sharia law or not? Yeah, yes or no. Yeah. But, um, you know, interesting. Joseph Couture, August 25th, has a great essay. Fly objectionable, fla- objectionable flag, or no flags at all, he writes. And um, he began the first half of his commentary by noting how our sense of political correctness to city proclamations has changed over the year. He reminds us of uh, past London Mayor Diane Haskett, who lost her battle with Ontario Human Rights Commission over her refusal to proclaim gay pride, saying you know, that to do so would violate her Christian conscience, right? And then he says, and he writes, Times have changed so much that both the current mayor and the chief of police have each been the first in their positions to march in the last two gay pride parades. Now we have a near-complete reversal of the situation, with the city refusing to fly a Christian flag, based largely, it seems, on the comments made by the man who submitted it. I had a coffee with my friend, the former minister of the gay-friendly Metropolitan Community Church, Clarence Crossman, and we had a robust discussion about this, he writes. I argued that if the city were going to claim a right to refuse to fly a flag representing not the view of merely one man, but of Christianity as a whole, it was not simply his views that should be judged, but the group entirely. Crossman said that was impossible, that Christianity today, in its leadership and followers, is not monolithic and cannot be said to represent one thing. I countered that enough Christians seem to violate the city's policy of not promoting hate, violence, and racism, and that, that that is the basis on which they could be disqualified. I pointed out to Crossman that Pope Benedict had recently remarked that gay marriage is currently the biggest threat facing humanity. Crossman told me the story of just how this summer one Mississippi Baptist church refused to marry a black couple on the premises because no black couple had ever been married there before. I felt these issues demonstrated current practices of both hate and racism. Crossman said it was foolish to say these actions represent all Christians, many of whom embrace tolerance and compassion. 
He also added that hate speech legislation does not guarantee freedom from offense. We are free to say objectionable things that do not cross the line into the realm of advocating hateful acts. But he said he supported, uh, oh, that he supports criminalizing speech that does cross that line. I'm not saying the city is right to refuse to fly the flag. I'm actually trying to make a larger point. What is considered inappropriate and offensive today by some people may tomorrow become a non-issue, and no matter what quote-unquote policy is used by the city to judge a particular group, someone will always be able to make a case that the group is inappropriate and should be refused. Unless we want to have this debate forever, the issue boils down to one of free speech. That is the protection of speech, even if you dislike it, find it offensive, or can even make some argument it violates the law. I do not believe we should cherry-pick whom we permit to speak and whom we don't based on transient ideas of political correctness. Not saying I have a solution, but it strikes me you either hold your nose and fly whatever flag is requested for celebrations or don't fly any at all. But even my free speech gay friends who have demanded such rights in the past for themselves have hesitated to support that idea, saying some groups are just too offensive. <laughs> so maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> Interesting comment, eh? Yes, very much like the Ezra Levant clip we played. Very much, yes. If it's not and, offensive, uh, then you, you're not doing the just another, test for free speech. Just another couple quick comments by two letter writers, too. E.R. Dow, who spoke, he says he doesn't know why everybody's getting so fussy about this guy, Rancourt. He says uh, he doesn't know him. He says, have you seen the, the annual Hate the Jews Day <laughs> that they were having? It's referring to, of course, Ezra's um, column that appeared. And he says, uh, Rancourt's comments seem tame in comparison. I don't know the man, but his main concern seems to be the preservation of Canadian values and family life. We don't need all the bleeding heart politicians coming out of the woodwork to make political capital either. They should be trying to preserve the same established Canadian values as well. Maybe our politicians should be more aggressive like Rancourt and taking steps to protect Canada's way of life before it's too late. And then F.H. Bain of Woodstock writes that Muslims are misrepresented. And he writes, as a history and religious instructor at a local community college and comments, quote, that such as those of Rancourt seem to be from those whose main source of information is from Fox News or some other right-wing propaganda sources who have no real belief in true democracy. They are the same ones fueling the public-private health care debate in Canada and trying to undermine many other freedoms we cherish. Did our valiant heroes of the world wars not fight and sacrifice for this principle? Is that, what, that not what our soldiers are trying to uphold today? Where you are wrong in your misleading and erroneous accusations that all Muslims are terrorists and jihadists. You need to go and look up the true meaning of jihad and sharia and stop distorting it. It's funny how we forget our immediate history. We make the same mistakes over and over again. Hate will only lead to destruction. When will we learn, he writes. <laughs> and I'm sitting there... Yeah, it is funny how we forget history, but also make it up as we go along. Hmm. Like he just did. Unbelievable. Public health care is a freedom? Interesting. Isn't it? Yeah. That, that our soldiers went to fight for? Uh-uh. We had no <laughs> such thing. They were fighting the country that had the public health care, my That's friend. That's true. <laughs> and, you know, free services are not freedom and are the exact opposite of what they fought for. Anyways, truth is in the philosophy department, not in the history department. I wonder how uh, Rancourt's sales of T-shirts went this weekend. No, well, I wonder. <laughs> let's take a quick break and just uh, a note on the by-elections that are going to happen next week before we go. Tell you a little bit about myself. I'm from a big Irish Catholic family, which is nice. My parents had seven kids. And uh, to be honest with you, I don't think they wanted seven kids. But they're Catholic. Yeah, you know what that means? They love Jesus. And they hate five of us. So that was nice. 
to vote. Nancy! My friend, my client. You know what? I need to review the bond issues again. I'm going to come back later. She's going to vote for you. I'm going to go cast my ballot. Vote for yourself. I'd hate to see you get shut out. Why are you smiling? Oh, just wait. Where's my name? My name's not on the ballot. What did you do? Nothing. It's just a miracle. God loves me. Where's my name? Hey. Excuse me, sir. Only one person allowed in the booth at a time. My name's not on the ballot. Where's my name? What name would that be? You're responsible for this. I wish that I could take credit for this. I really do. Doug, I'm sure there's a reasonable explanation. Yes, your wife's a cheating whore. Write me in. Doug Wilson, write me in. Oh, wait, wait, are you really going to let him do this? Doug Wilson. Mr. Wilson, I'm sorry. There's a law that clearly prohibits any candidate from campaigning within 300 feet of a polling place. Well, I'm not a candidate because my name's not on the ballot, asswipe. Yeah, asswipe. Right, and Doug Wilson, That's everybody. Right. Change only brings problems. <laughs> Doug Wilson. Well, there you go, Robert. Should he be allowed to be protesting there? He's no longer a candidate. He fits in with the, he fits in with the criteria. A right? Shade of gray there in the law. Yeah, really. There's another example. That's from from the series Weeds, of course. And boy, did I have to do a lot of editing to even clean it up that much. Yeah, it's a rather. And uh, of course, we have language. two two by elections going on in Ontario right now: Vaughan and Kitchener Waterloo. And it's really interesting. I saw a letter to the Free Press just the other day from Grand Bend. Where are you, Hudak? When will Tim Hudak assume his position in Ontario politics? His job is in opposition. He ought to try it, or I'll have to assume he's a liberal clone of Dalton McGinty, right? Well, he is. Which is exactly what's going on. And sometimes, you know, it gets frustrating for guys like you and me. We have two great candidates running in both ridings who have a completely differing agenda than anybody else in those ridings. Um, we've got Aaron Good- Goodwin in uh, Vaughn. Vaughn, and we've got David Driver in Kitchener-Waterloo. And um, it's just amazing to see how, still today, despite the fact that they're both running for Freedom Party of Ontario, which was one of five parties capable of electing a majority government last time, they still get totally ignored, and the issues just become non-issues. It's almost as if you didn't have that vote there, don't you think? I wish I was running in Vaughn. My signs would say, Vaughn for Vaughn. Vaughn for Vaughn. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but you know what happens? It's, it's, the, it's the hammerhead principle, eh? You, even with all the growing discontent against McGinty, um, people are going to keep the emperor in place. Because you know, so. he knows how to play them. And he's created this diversion with the, with the teachers, which is not what it's all about. And so, basically, you get people who are really mad at McGinty and want to keep him out, so they're going to vote for the next party they think that can keep him out, based on the polls and not on anything else. And so they do that, and then the people who have been responsible for keeping McGinty in are doing the same thing. And there's a non-voting voter, of course, who's so skeptical about politics he doesn't do anything anymore. So McGinty's in a win-no-lose situation, as far as this by-election goes, right? Uh, if he wins both ridings, we're going to have a majority government of liberals, and the next election will be some time off. But, you know, for most of us, nothing's going to really change, because when it really comes down to it, voting for the same thing, but a different party is still voting for the same thing, right? And so, why people think voting for conservative versus liberal will change anything, given their history and their explicit past, 
and their record of action and inaction on certain issues, I don't know why people think anything's going to change very much. I think we're going to continue to see electricity rates skyrocket with huge shocks coming, more shortfalls in revenue, you know, deficits, the whole deal. And, and we're sitting here on the edge of this Greek-like moral and fiscal crisis, and nobody is even addressing it, Robert. Doesn't that scare you? Is this, yes, it does. It's, it's a microcosm. It's of, always meet the, uh, meet the new boss, same as the old boss, every single election. That's, you know, that's what it comes down to. And then, of course, they're making it all about unions. And uh, so anyways, if you are having a chance to vote in this election, we have a couple of great recommendations for you if you live in either of those two ridings. And for everyone else, if you're looking for a real change in government, maybe it's time to look at something different. Even, it doesn't have to be us, but something different from what you've been voting for in the past. No, I mean, it hasn't been us. Well, I think so. But I mean, I, have to li- I like to leave people to do their own investigation and arrive at their own conclusions, right? True, of course. And the thing is, I've always believed that people would choose the right thing if they knew it was an option. But keeping the option from them and never letting them see it or misrepresenting it and constantly, you know, putting it to the side, how can they choose? They have no choice without even knowing it. They can go to the poll and vote all they want. Pretend they're Soviet citizens. One party, one vote, (laughs) one time. You know, that old system. Anyways... That's where we're at with politics today. I don't see much changing. Unless we keep at it. Because it's our job. You're right, Robert. We'll be back next week with another episode of Just Right. Until then, you know what to do. We'll continue our journey in the right direction. Join us next week. See you then. Fade into color Color into black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be all right Let's see your proposals. Here they are. Here are mine. (laughs) Would you have specific proposals to them? No, indeed I have. Now, Humphrey, you read out what you've got on safeguards, and I'll read out what I've got, and we'll see how they compare. Personal data, 1A. Safeguards must be applied with reference to two criteria, the need to know and and the right right to to know. 1A1, the need to know. Only Only those officials for whom the information is submitted may be deemed prima facie to have a need to know. You seem to be of the same mind, Humphrey. Indeed. 